We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount for nearly four months now. And today we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the primary themes of the Sermon on the Mount that we've seen over the last several months is that essentially Jesus tells us in his sermon that there are two paths for life. Uh, One, there's one path that makes sense to our minds. It makes sense to us. It makes sense to the world around us. It seems like common sense. And it's a path, Jesus says, that many people are on. But Jesus said it leads to destruction. leads to death. But then there's another path that doesn't always make sense. It seems paradoxical. It seems countercultural. It seems upside down. It's a path where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. When, when someone attacks you, you turn the other cheek. It says that we're to love our enemies and lay up our treasures in heaven. And it seems like you're like, that's the way, like, that's not the way to the good life. That's the way to get taken advantage of. That's the way to being broke. But this is the way of Jesus. And Jesus said, it doesn't lead to destruction. That is the way to life. In fact, seven times Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, meaning you, there's this wisdom of the world that you've heard, but I say to you. And so the point of the Sermon on the Mount then is that it is an invitation from Jesus himself to follow him on the path to life. And the path seems strange. It even seems costly at times. But what we learn from the sermon and from the life of Jesus is that we can trust the one who goes before us and shows us the way. The story of Christmas, too. Here we are a week away from Christmas. And the story of Christmas is not so different from the Sermon on the Mount. It is an invitation as well. It's an invitation to choose your king. To choose this day whom you will worship. And you can choose to worship the kings of the world. Caesar Augustus or Herod or power and wealth and pleasure. Or you can bow to an infant child that was born to poor parents in a manger in Bethlehem. And and what I think both the Sermon on the Mount and the Christmas story demonstrates to us is this, that there is a wisdom from the world that seems right to us. It seems like it makes sense. There's a way of the world that seems right to us. And And we think if we pursue this path, it will lead us to life. But that path always takes more than it gives. But there's a wisdom from God that looks foolish It looks like it will actually take everything from us. Blessed are those who mourn. Lay up your treasures in heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. It looks foolish and it seems like if I follow this way of Jesus, I'll lose everything. And Jesus says, yeah, but you'll gain everything. See, if we go down this path, this path of Jesus, it gives us life. And I want us to look at two passages in the scriptures, one that gives us the Christmas story and one that kind of puts the final closes the book on the Sermon on the Mount for us. The first is the story of Christmas that we see through the wise men. Matthew, chapter two, starting in verse one, it says now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came from Jerusalem, came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, 
For so it is written by the prophet. And they quote Micah here. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine, referring to his sermon on the mount, and does them will be like a wise man. Who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. At his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. That's God's word. First thing I want you to see is the way of the world. See, at the time of Jesus, Rome ruled most of the known world. I mean, the Roman Empire was kind of at its height at this point. And at this time, there was something that was called the Pax Romana, which is translated as the Peace of Rome. And it referred to the peace that existed between all the nations that existed within the Roman Empire at the time. But the dirty little secret about the peace of Rome is that that peace was attained through violence and conquest. And it was maintained through violence and conquest. See, the peace of Rome only came once Rome would come in and conquer your people, slaughter all opposition, and make you subservient and reliant upon them. Peace was... uh, the. Peace of Rome was essentially just, we destroy you, we conquer you, and if you, dethr- if you pose any threat or any opposition, we'll make it even worse. So peace only came through fear and intimidation and through actual conquest. But once Rome would conquer a nation, it, Rome was too big for one leader to lead all of it. It was just too massive. And so what they would do is they would appoint a local leader to rule over each region. And the deal was that the leader would rule and keep the people under his thumb and Rome would keep that leader under their thumb. And as long as, that, as, long as he played nice with the empire and did what they said to do and didn't step out of line, they would let him rule his own little small kingdom. And in Judea, that king was Herod the Great. And to put it bluntly, Herod was a psychopath. Truly, Herod was half Jewish, but he cared nothing for the Jewish people. His entire allegiance was to Rome because they gave him power. And he treated the people, he treated the people of Judea much like Rome treated him. So if you obeyed him, if you obeyed Herod, if you celebrated him, worshiped him, obeyed him, stayed in line, kind of praised him and kind of fed his ego, he would treat you well. He could offer you power. He could make you wealthy. He could give you a position in his cabinet or whatever. Or at the very least, he could just leave you alone, which is what many people wanted from the Roman Empire. Just leave me alone. But if there was any hint to Herod that you offered any opposition to him or that you did not offer him your full support or your loyalty, he would make life miserable to you. I told you he was a psychopath. 
He murdered his wife and his sons because he thought that they were eyeing his throne at one point because he suspected them of wanting to usurp his authority. So he was a paranoid king and he was demanding. And Herod would make demands on his subjects, but he would also offer rewards. If they, if they appeased him, he would, he would give them power and wealth and all these things. But you would, get, you would get rewards if you served him, but it was at continual cost. The only way to receive blessing under Herod was to constantly feed his ego. And this was the dilemma for the people of Judea. They could bow to a king that promised them security and pleasure, but they always had to prove it over and over and over and over and over again, their allegiance to him, because at any moment they knew that Herod could turn on them and pull the rug out from under them and completely destroy their lives. And so it's a dilemma. Do we serve this king that, that may give us what we want, but he can take it from us in any moment. And so there was paranoia, there was anxiety under his rule. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows us that we all have things in our lives that serve as kings in our own little lives. Uh, things that offer value to us, things that offer reward, and things that we're convinced. If we bow to these things, if we serve them, they will give us something in return. But the Sermon on the Mount teaches us that we have to know that any king we bow to, it comes with a cost. For example, Jesus says, if money is your king, it's useful. Money is a useful thing, but it makes a terrible king. Jesus says, many people will serve money and they'll be overcome with greed and they will worship it and they'll do whatever they can to please and appease the king of money. But Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. Or you cannot serve two kings. And in fact, he says money is an awful, awful king to serve. See, money can provide you security. And it can give you pleasure. But you can't place all your faith and all your hope. And you can't build a house on it. Because money can slip away from you at any moment. It's a terrible king. Useful servant. Awful king. In fact, Oxford University, they did a study. And they found that. Between 2008 and 2009, over 10,000 suicides in the United States were directly related to the economic downturn. That's 10,000 people who put their faith and their hope and their security and their identity in their bank accounts and in their investments. And when the Dow Jones drops, they had nothing left. And you can do this with power, you can do it with beauty, you can do it with sex, you can do it with pleasure or health or relationships. All good things. But if you treat them as kings, you will be disappointed at some point. Because they can turn on you at any moment. Beauty fades. Money can be gone in a moment. Relationships can be broken. If you bow to those things, you will continually have to sacrifice to those things so that the blessings that they give keep coming. And Jesus says this is to do that would be to be building your house on sand. And here's the point I'm getting at. It makes so much sense in our heads, doesn't it? To pursue these things. Wealth, power, pleasure, status, relationships. Because they do make us happy in some sense. They do give us some reward. And this is why the way of Jesus can seem so foolish. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Are you kidding me, Jesus? I want to be proud. I want to be on top. I don't want to be poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. No. 
I want to minimize pain at all costs. And any moment that pain starts creeping into my life, I will binge watch Netflix for hours just to keep from feeling it. Or I will medicate it with drugs or alcohol or something. Blessed are those who mourn. No, I don't want that, Jesus. Turn the other cheek. Are you kidding me? Flee from sexual immorality. Give my money away. That sounds foolish. And in Judea, it also would have seemed very foolish to reject the all-powerful Herod to worship at the feet of an infant. And in the text, we see that the chief priests wouldn't do it. They wouldn't bow to baby Jesus the king. The scribes wouldn't do it. It even says that all of Jerusalem was troubled to do it. See, there's a way of the world that seems right and it's what we, we feel like it's what we want and there's the way of Jesus that seems foolish and we don't want to touch it because we just aren't confident that it's going to lead to life because it seems so foolish. That's the way of the world, but what's the way of the king? In Matthew 2, the wise men come to Herod. They say, who is this child that has been born king of the Jews? And I love the shade that they're throwing on Herod right here. Like these dudes have guts. It takes courage to come up to Herod and be like, Who's this child that's the king of the Jews to the guy who thinks he's the king of the Jews? And it indicates two things, that they were convinced that this baby in Bethlehem was the Messiah. But they're also, they're saying to Herod that the the throne that he sits on is not his. It belongs to a little baby in Bethlehem. And Herod gets, it says he gets greatly troubled. But the wise men say, we have come to worship him. And then they quote Micah 5.2, a prophecy from the, the, the book of Micah. And they say, and you, O Bethlehem. And the Herod says, where is this king going to be born? And they say, and they quote this verse, and they say, it's, and, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now that quote, they're quoting a prophecy from Micah chapter 5, and it's a prophecy about the true king, the Messiah of Israel. But the wise men add two lines to it that aren't in the original prophecy. And many scholars say that this isn't them just ad-libbing and adding something that they want. They're interpreting the Old Testament prophecy through the lens of what they now know through the king of Jesus. And so they're interpreting Micah's prophecy, and they add two lines, and these two lines tell us They show us the way of the king. They tell us how the king comes and how he leads. And those things are in direct contrast to Herod. So how he comes. They say, and you, O Bethlehem. How does the king come? They say, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah. And they add this line. Are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. One commentator, a scholar says, in Matthew's wording, by inserting the phrase translated by no means, it shows that the birth of the child will transform Bethlehem from a relatively insignificant town into a city of great honor. See, this is the way of Jesus. To transform the world through insignificant means. See, the way of Herod, in the way of Herod, power comes through Rome. The powerful, the wealthy, the influential city. And power comes through conquest and, and attractiveness and might and, and smooth talking and wealth. And it comes through all the things we think that popularity and power come through. But the way of Jesus, power comes through Bethlehem, a little insignificant farming town. But not only does it come through Bethlehem, but it comes through these really insignificant parents. 
a teen mom who we look at and go, she was the child in her womb was given to her. Uh, it was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But anybody in her time would have looked on her as just an illegitimate mom. And she would have been cast out from society. And then his dad was this just a regular Joe stuff. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> insignificant town to insignificant parents and in an insignificant way. Philippians 2, 5 through 7 says, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. See, Herod came by power. He looked up the chain to Rome. He manipulated, he killed, he positioned, and jockeyed for authority so that his ego could be filled. But Jesus emptied himself. Jesus left heaven, the right hand of the Father, where there's no crying, no mourning, no sickness, no shame, no pain. To be born into the likeness of men, born to a teen mom and a poor father in the middle of nowhere, not in a hospital, not in a hotel, but in a cave, in a cave. And he would live most of his life in obscurity. The prophet Isaiah even says he wasn't good looking. He was homeless for most of his ministry and the people he came to serve and the people he came to love would execute him. That's the way of Jesus. That's Jesus's way to the throne. Very different from Herod, isn't it? King Herod destroyed whomever he needed in order to gain and maintain power so that he could build his own kingdom. But Jesus himself was destroyed and gave his power up so that he could invite us us into his. It seems foolish, but in the end, which king would you rather give your life to? Which king would you trust your life to? One that's going to manipulate you for his own gain? Or one that's going to lay himself down for yours. That's how he came. But look at how he leads. They say, for from you shall come a ruler. In Micah it just said, for for from you shall come a ruler of Israel. But they say, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. See, the wise men added, who will shepherd Israel. And they're telling us about the character of the king. They're telling us about the character of the Messiah, the character of Jesus. And this tells us about who Jesus is and how he came to love us and lead us. See, Herod was a ruler king. He leads by decree and by threats and by power. Jesus is a shepherd king. And a shepherd has two primary goals. I mean, the job description of a shepherd is this. First, to lead the sheep to that which they're searching for. It's a shepherd's job. In February, I'm going to be leading a group of several of you to Israel. We're going to take a tour of the Holy Land. And when you visit Israel, the Bible kind of, you get, it, it comes to life in many ways. And one of the things that, one, like, one of the things that took me by surprise when I was in Israel the first time is we all know the, the, the Psalm, Psalm 23, where it says, the Lord is my shepherd. He leads me to green pastures. I don't know why. I mean, I know it's the Middle East, right, when I read the Bible. But for some reason, I'm thinking of like a field in Ireland when I hear that. You know, some guy in a kilt. He leads me to green pastures. But David, who wrote this psalm, he was in the Middle East. He was in the desert. And a pasture 
in the Middle East, it's as rare in Israel as it is in New York City. Okay, I mean, seriously, a pasture, like what he's referring to with leading the, the, the sheep to something to eat. It's like, you know, like on a basketball court when there's like weeds growing out of the concrete. That's about how common grass to eat for the, for the sheep are in the Middle East, in Israel. And here's the thing. If you know anything about sheep, they are stupid. Sheep are stupid. They will, the thing about sheep is they'll eat anything that's in front of them. They will eat anything. If they are hungry they will, and there's no grass, they'll eat garbage, they'll eat rocks, or they will drink still water that's filthy, that's contaminated, and it'll kill them. And the job of a shepherd is to scout out the, the land before his sheep, to go before them and find where the grass and the running water is and then lead his sheep to it. And see, we're not so different from sheep. God knows what we need for our life. But we're so hungry and we're so impatient sometimes that instead of following our good shepherd and trusting that he will feed us what we need, we often go out searching for our own. And instead, what we do, instead of eating in the green pastures that Jesus is leading us to, we eat the garbage and the rocks that are in front of us. Jesus says, store up your treasures in heaven. Be generous with that which I've given to you. And we balk at that and we're like, nope, I want financial security on my own terms. Jesus says, flee from sexual immorality. And we go, I am so lonely. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. And we go, no, I would rather numb it by eating these rocks. I would rather numb my pain than be changed by it. See, the kings of the world, those kings that we serve, that we so easily get enticed by, they promise us immediate immediate satiation of our spiritual hunger. But they never satisfy us. But Jesus says, trust me because I'm leading you to life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, he says. Not comfort, not security, not wealth, not status, but those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. The job of a shepherd is to lead you to what you really need and what you really want. The second job of a shepherd is to protect a sheep. Uh, there are times where a shepherd might see a storm coming, or they might see a pack of Animals that are a little bit up the food chain from the sheep, which is all animals, basically, that have teeth. And what he's going to do when he sees that is he's going to lead his flock over a steep mountain or on a treacherous journey to get away from that place where they are, where they're in danger. And if the sheep could talk, they would say, this shepherd is wearing us down. I don't like where he's taking us. This road is so hard. My feet are tired of walking. But the sheep don't see what the shepherd sees. And so often the way of Jesus feels painful to us. It feels, uh, it just feels wrong. To, it feels arbitrary to us. What are these commands for? Flee from sexual immorality. Give away my money. Blessed are those who mourn. That, the journey is long and the road is hard, it feels like. And we're like, Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. I know better than Jesus. And his commands not only sound impossible, but sometimes if we're honest, they sound cruel. And to obey the way of Jesus seems painful for us. Jesus even said, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. It is hard. And Herod or whatever king we bow down to may promise immediate pleasure. But Jesus says there's a narrow gate and there's a narrow hard road, but it leads to abundant life. And you see both the Christmas story and the Sermon on the Mount offer us an invitation into greater life. And the way of Jesus can seem foolish at first, but it leads to life. 
You know, Jesus, the, Kyle preached on the narrow gate and the wide gate last week. And I just think of, you know, Willy Wonka. They walk into that room. It looks really big. And then by the time they get to the end of it, they're all crunched together. And it's like this tiny little door they can't even get through. That's the Broadway. It makes so much sense. And we start walking on it. Everybody's on it. And before we know it, it just is constricting us. But the way of Jesus is like Narnia. Amen. C.S. Lewis. Love it. He's going through a wardrobe. You know, Peter and Edmund and Susan are making fun of Lucy. Are you talking about going through a wardrobe? We can't go through a wardrobe to get to a dream world. Seems foolish. Narrow gate, but it leads to a wide life. And it opens up. And the beauty of what God has created for us then and designed for us begins to come into view when we enter through the narrow gate. That's the way way of the king. Now let's look at the way to the king. Verse 9, Matthew chapter 2, it says, After listening to the king, the wise men went on the way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. It's my favorite detail in the whole story. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. See, they knew the cost of bowing to Jesus and rejecting Herod. But they knew the reward. And after they had seen the Son of God face to face, it says they departed to their own country by another way. This is the invitation of the Christian life. We think one way leads us home. But Jesus says this is the way that leads to home. And we're so convinced this is the way to go. But when we come face to face with the risen Christ, the Son of God, we must then turn from the way of Herod and go another way to to our home country. It says when Jesus finished and when Jesus finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount, it says in Matthew 7, 28, when he finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. You see, Matthew ends the Sermon on the Mount with an invitation of sorts where he says, if Jesus is the authority, which way will you go? Once you have encountered the son of God, will you be like the wise men and go another way? Or will you walk right back in to the king's arms, to the worldly king's arms? See, some of you have been walking in a certain direction for a long, long time, and you know that that path isn't leading you to the joy you crave. But you're so afraid. You're so afraid that if you go the way of Jesus, you'll lose something or it will cost you. Uh, One of my favorite Christmas movies uh, is A Charlie Brown Christmas. There's that scene... You know, the climactic scene where Linus reads the nativity account. And I just love Linus. He's so cute. And we love that scene. It's a classic. But there's a moment that happens in that scene that you probably have never noticed. Charles Schultz, the creator of Peanuts, was actually a Christian. A very committed Christian. And he left a theological mark on that, on, on that, t- on that television special. It's very subtle, but it's there. Linus, as you may know Linus... He carries that blanket around all the time, that blue security blanket. And he carries it with him all the time. And throughout the story of Peanuts, Lucy, Snoopy, Sally, and all the others try their best to separate Linus from his blanket with no success. 
They make fun of him. They ridicule him. But he refuses to give up the blanket. It just gives him so much comfort. And he can't imagine a world without the security of that blanket. And they're, never, they're not able to get him to let go of it, even though his security blanket remains a major source of ridicule for the otherwise mature and thoughtful Linus. He just refuses to give it up until one moment when he does. Next time you watch this special, pay attention. He does drop the blanket right in the middle of reading the birth account of Jesus from Luke chapter 2. He lets go of the blanket the moment he says, fear not. Author, one of uh, Charles Schultz's biographers writes about this. He says, looking at it now, it's pretty clear what Charles Schultz was saying through all of this. It's so simple and it's brilliant. The birth of Jesus separates us from our fears. The birth of Jesus frees us from the habits we are unable or unwilling to break ourselves. The birth of Jesus allows us to simply drop the false security that we have been grasping so tightly and learn to trust and cling to him instead. The world today can be a scary place and most of us find ourselves grasping to something temporal for security, whatever that thing may be. Essentially, today is a world in which it is very difficult for us to fear not. But in the midst of fear and insecurity, this simple cartoon image from 1965 continues to live on as an inspiration for us to seek true peace and true security in the one place it has always been and can always be found at the feet of Jesus. The child king who would grow up to conquer sin and death, save the world from ourselves and lead us into an eternal kingdom. Does anyone know what Christmas is all about? That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Whatever your fears, whatever you're bringing in here this morning, whatever kings you're working so darn hard to please, can you trust that it is the way of Jesus that leads to life? And then Jesus gives these words at the end of his Sermon on the Mount where he says, everyone who hears these words will be like one who builds their house on the rock. And everyone who doesn't hear these words is like the one who builds their house on the sand. The one that builds their house on the rock, it's a sure foundation. The one who builds it on the sand, it will crumble away over time. And the point is this, beachfront property is really appealing sometimes, isn't it? A foundation of sand cannot withstand the storms. Bowing to Herod was appealing for many at the time of Jesus' birth. But the wise men knew that Jesus was the safer bet. And likewise, Jesus says the way of the world, the way of lesser kings can look appealing to us. And he says, but these words of mine can appear foolish and scary at first, but they are a sure foundation. And here's what you need to know. Everybody thought Herod was so big and great back in Jesus' day. But in February, that team of us that's going to Israel, we're going to walk over Roman ruins. We're going to pay $11 to get a ticket to walk over Roman ruins. There's a souvenir shop that sells bookmarks and Sprite on the site where the once great Herod ruled. That kingdom fell. But we're also going to stand at an empty tomb. And we're going to sing how great is our God. See, the Sermon on the Mount, the story of Christmas, are initiations into an abundant life. And one may seem foolish... But there's a way that build on the rock and that the way of Jesus is building your life on the rock and it will stand. Herod's kingdom fell. Jesus still stands.
There's a wisdom from the world that seems right to us, but if we pursue this path, it will always take more than it gives, but there is a wisdom of God that looks foolish. And it looks like it might take everything from us, but if we go down this path, it gives us life. It's the way of Jesus.